Hey everybody, we've actually got a partner for this episode, so I want to thank the good folks over at They Called Us a Movie, which is a podcast about B-movies and all the great stuff you can find in that genre. So give them a listen and enjoy the episode. Are you tired of watching the same old awesome movies? Are B-movies more your style? Then the folks over at They Called Us a Movie have you covered. Join us every Thursday as we review the worst of the worst in sci-fi, action, comedy, and more. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean at theycalledthisamovie.podbean.com. They called this a movie, testing the strength of friendships, one terrible movie at a time. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you might know today's guest as Zeke in The Guest, or from his starring role as David and John Dies at the End, Chase Williamson is here. Welcome, Chase. Thank you so much for having me. It's oh, a pleasure to be here, you. George. I want to get right to it. You're the star of the upcoming Green Light as well, which is a movie that I got a chance to see and really enjoyed a lot. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah, it's a horror movie about an aspiring director who finally gets his shot, only to find out that there's more strings attached than he thought. And this makes three great horror movies that you've been in that I've already named. So I'm just curious, like, how you got into horror? Is this something that draws you to a script? Uh, well, I mean, I was a huge, like, horror nerd growing up and stuff. You know, kind of gravitate to that whole world naturally and then um i went to theater school and i graduated and then like a week later i just kind of happened to get an audition for john dies at the end and i kind of just fell in love with the script and really went for it ended up being my first job that kind of opened the door to a lot of other opportunities in that world so it kind of just worked out in the way that i feel like it was meant to that's awesome. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, you say you've been a horror nerd going way back. Do you have a subgenre preference? Like, are you a slasher guy or paranormal? Um, I think I go, uh, I like a, a mix. Of, I like a, a mashup. I don't think I like anything that's, well, I like stuff. I don't think I'm preferential to like one particular thing. I kind of like when something is a little bit of everything mixed with some like weird ambiguity, like the movie we're about to talk about. Yeah, don't put Chase Williamson in a box. No, don't. I won't. I won't be put in a box, and I, I can't. Yeah, so let's let's jump right into it. The movie that you picked for us to talk about today is the 1980 Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. Possibly one of the most well-known horror movies. Like, I feel like if you ask a non-horror fan to name a horror movie, this is going to be in the first five, and that just speaks to how large this looms in terms of its place in pop culture and horror history. Yes. I was shocked to see that nobody had talked about it on your show already. Yeah, you and me both, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's honestly not only my favorite horror movie, but probably like my favorite movie. The, yeah. mouse pad, the mouse pad that I'm using right now is the print of the, of the carpet. I have the picture that they zoom into at the end uh, of the ballroom in a giant frame on my wall. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I love that movie. <laughs> Not only do you have uh, Kubrick, one of history's great directors behind the camera, uh, it also stars Jack Nicholson as Jack, uh, Shelley Duvall as Wendy, and Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance. And it's also a world record holder for most takes of a single scene. Uh, oh. Duvall and Nicholson had to shoot the famous scene where she's swinging the bat at him 
uh, reported 127 times, although Garrett Brown says that this is a little bit of an exaggeration, and it's closer to 45. And I'm curious how you react to this as an actor, just like being like, oh, God, <laughs> does that sound exhausting? I mean, that sounds like a total nightmare, but I mean, the result was great. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think in the moment I would be pretty, you know, exhausted, but I think that's kind of what he was going for. So, yeah, I would agree. I, 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 don't, I don't mind being tortured a little bit if it results in something um, truthful or, or more realistic than me just sort of like conjuring something on my own. Sure. Suffering for your art. It's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me feel legit. Yeah. And I, Shelley Duvall actually agrees with that. She said that despite their differences, she learned more from Kubrick than any of her previous films and that she wouldn't trade the experience for anything, but that she also would never want to repeat it. <laughs> yes. And uh, Kubrick did know he was being a little crazy and said that he was push, uh, pushing Shelley because Wendy Torrance is such a tough character. And Jack Nicholson agreed calling Wendy the hardest role anyone ever had to play. So high praise by Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough, it is a tough role. And she, I've never seen a performance like hers in that movie. It's so, it's just feels very, I don't know, I've just never seen anyone give a performance that kind of captured the same vibe as that. It's like kind of hard to put your finger on what's going on, but it feels like both like really real and grounded, but in its own world also in a weird way, which makes their two characters feel even more sort of like at odds because she's occupying this completely different space than he is. Yeah. Even their personalities seem so different. Like Jack says that he's in love with the isolation and he's so happy to be there. But when we see her talking on the radio, like she's so relieved to have someone to talk to that isn't her son or her husband, that that outgoing personality compared to his introversion is really they're at odds from the minute the movie starts. Yeah, totally. And you know, like, especially at the time, everyone knew Jack Nicholson's whole persona and vibe or whatever. So you can kind of imagine how they were at better times. If you imagine like Jack Nicholson, as we know him, an extroverted party boy. And then you see her kind of like with this sort of like outgoing person personality wanting to connect with other people. It kind of just gives you some context. Well, you already have the context, just the fact that it's Jack Nicholson, but it makes it feel less like, uh, why would these two people be together? I totally agree with that. One other thing that's interesting about this movie is that it was shot by the inventor of the Steadicam, Garrett Brown. One of the first 12 movies to actually have Steadicam. I mean, there's nothing like going right to the source, you know, having <laughs> the guy who was yeah. the damn thing. Yep. And for people who aren't familiar with the story, Jack Nicholson is Jack Torrance, a recovering alcoholic who lost his teaching job thanks to his temper. And in an attempt to rebuild his life, he takes a position as the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel, where he and his family will stay for the winter. Very simple story, but the horror really comes from watching this family disintegrate before you. It's pretty thematically rich. And every time I've seen it probably a hundred times and every time I pick up on something new that I didn't notice before, interpreted in a different way. And that's what I really love about it. Yeah, I uh, actually had a very similar reaction where I I was finding new stuff every time I watch it as well, including this most recent rewatch. At the very beginning, I never really noticed that there's so many people milling about when Jack first shows up to have his interview. And Mm -hmm. 
seeing it with life in it is so different from what happens later in the movie. It's really shocking to get that kind of dichotomy. Yeah, and there's a lot of really subtly weird stuff going on with all the people in the background. Like, you know, they talk about in that documentary, Room 237, which is about like all the conspiracy theories people have about the movie. There's this character that's with the man that is interviewing him for the position that never has any lines but has a very specific attitude that people are are interpreting in all these different ways but he's just sort of like clearly withholding something or like judging jack in some way and it's never brought up again or like referenced so he's just like peppers it with little little tiny things that just like subconsciously unsettle you and make it like it's you're in a different world or like something's not quite right Kind of like how like the geography of the hotel makes absolutely no sense on purpose. They'll go down one hallway and there will be a window that couldn't possibly be there based on previous scenes when they had been like in another room. And then there's parts where Danny will be on his bike thing and all of a sudden he'll be on like the third floor when he'd be on, he's been on the first floor. And the longer the movie keeps going, the more disorienting it becomes because they do more and more of that. They just completely throw out any rules in terms of like the geography of the space. It's a perfect movie to keep your eye on the background for. There's just so many little things that are designed to unsettle you without even realizing it. Yeah, it's, it's real good. <laughs> One thing that Jack hears when he goes to this interview is he hears the story of the previous character caretaker Charles Grady who couldn't take the stress of the isolation he snapped killing his wife and his twin daughters and then himself and it's fun Jack has no reaction (laughs) oh yeah whatever we'll be able to handle it and it's so funny to see him shrug it off so nonchalantly and then compare that with what he ends up as (laughs) yeah We also get to meet Danny, Jack's son, who talks to his imaginary friend, Tony, the little boy that lives in his mouth, which is Mm -hmm. very unsettling. Yes. (laughs) Tony appeared around nursery school after dislocating his shoulder, and he seems to cause these psychic premonitions for Danny, where he has a vision of blood pouring from the Overlook Hotel and then has a seizure. And man, talk about one of the iconic scenes of horror. Yeah. It's insane. And I mean, I've I've mentioned before Kubrick's determination to get the takes exactly right. And it's funny because he got this shot in just three takes, but it took nine days to set up each take. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. It, yeah, it, it's, it's not quite as quick as it seems when you say it only took three takes. That's like 27 days. Yeah. <laughs> When the Torrances arrive at the Overlook, we meet Dick Halloran as well, who is Scatman Crothers, super charming in this movie, and he's the head chef. We get a little bit of exposition here where he explains to Danny that he has the same ESP, which he calls The Shining, and says that some places are like people, and the Overlook has something like Shining. And it's, it's very ominous, this conversation that he has with Danny. And I like that he kind of treats Danny a little more adult than a lot of people do. And I think that that helps to communicate kind of the stakes that he's like, I need you to take this seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously he like sees a little bit of himself in him and also he kind of like can access his mind. So he knows that he's dealing with a kid that probably is like on a different plane than most other children would be. He warns Danny that thanks to the various atrocities at the hotel, 
people who can shine are sensitive to it, especially room 237, which you mentioned is the subject of much debate in terms of numerology and all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's a, a litany of theories about this movie, but that room in particular has a focal point in a lot of them. And then he leaves the Torrances to the long winter. There's an immediate cut to a month later, which I normally am very suspicious of like long time jumps, but I love the way that you get this immediate cabin fever sensation that they're, oh, totally. they've already been here for a month. The honeymoon phase is over. Yeah. I mean, if you had seen them like, after they see the hotel, to see them have moving in and like checking it out would have been redundant, I think. Definitely. So it's nice that it just like jumps right into it. Yeah, and it opens up with one of those awesome ultra low tracking shots of Danny on his trike. They were actually filmed by just mounting the steady cam to a wheelchair and pushing it around, <laughs> making do with what you have. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Jack is talking to Wendy and said that the minute he arrived, he felt like he'd been here before. And it was at this moment that I realized that he didn't need to be shown to the back office for his interview. Oh, see, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I was like, wow, he like he he doesn't even realize it, but he has been here forever. We see, we hear later, someone says, "You've always been the caretaker," and it's true. I mean, we see it again and again, and all these little things like that. He's already deteriorating quickly, thanks in part yeah. to writer's block, lack of sleep, and Danny keeps getting drawn to room 237 despite the warning having visions of the two murdered grady girls who i gotta say are way scarier than grady himself <laughs> oh yeah they're very spooky uh spooky the english accent girls. That have is just like just proper enough that it's like <laughs> it adds <laughs> yeah you're, it puts you at ease a little bit <laughs> And Wendy is kind of nervous by nature, it seems like, and she's trying to keep Danny occupied with games like exploring the hedge maze uh, on the grounds before winter really sets in. And I'm not a huge maze guy. Like, what do you think about like corn mazes? You like that kind of thing? Um, no, I wouldn't do that. No, yeah. I mean, I have done that. And uh, I, I kind of gave up halfway through, I think. I have a terrible sense of direction. Same. I think I would just get lost in there for like way too long and it would not be fun anymore. I like the idea of it, but in practice, I don't think, I don't think it's for me yeah. unless I have to, you know, escape from some homicidal maniac. And I, <laughs> you know, later spoiler alert for like 20 minutes later in this conversation, but uh, Jack does get trapped in there, but he does have an ax. So I always wondered like, why didn't he just try and chop his way out? Good point. Um, Very good point. But they're thick shrubs. Yeah, yeah. All right. Fair enough. They did a really good job building it to survive the winter, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we get a really awesome aerial shot of Danny and Wendy walking around in the maze. It starts with like a slow zoom of a model of the the maze and. Jack is watching them, and it's this really awesome shot. It's the only one that was not achieved in camera. They built a, a small model of the maze that they had, and then they built a scale one next to an apartment where the camera crew filmed it from the roof of the apartment building and just composited them together. It's a really great shot. We also get, a, like, I mean, one thing that you'll, you'll find about this movie is that there are no bad shots. I mean, they did an incredible job putting this together. And that perfectionism that Kubrick had, you can't argue with the results. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful movie. And we get these like really beautifully tense scenes, like the next one where Danny is, he's up by room 237 and the, a tennis ball just rolls out at him. And the production design is so great. That carpet pattern that you mentioned is 
as iconic as any horror villain. The production design of a building. <laughs> yeah. And he starts to walk into room 237, and simultaneously, Jack starts screaming in the lounge. And he tells Wendy that he had a nightmare about killing them like the former caretaker. And she initially tells him that everything's going to be okay. But Danny shows up at the other end of the room with a dazed look and bruises and a ripped sweater. And she flips out, accusing Jack of hurting him and ushering Danny back to the room. And we find out that this injury that she had mentioned before about Danny dislocating his shoulder was because Jack was uh, angry and drunk. Uh, I mentioned Jack's alcoholism. He dislocated Danny's shoulder after Danny spread all his uh, his papers around. Yeah. There's a history there, and so it's easy to understand why her mind would jump to that. Yep. Jack's not happy about it, though, and he stomps around the hotel with just this incredible and impressive score. They used a lot of classical music pieces in this movie that are really great, and he makes his way to the ballroom. Now, this is, I mean, in addition to the, to the blood out of the elevator, this scene is also one of the most iconic scenes in all of horror, I'd say, where Jack makes his way to the bar and starts talking to the bartender, Lloyd, saying he would sell his soul for a drink. I mean, g- give me your take to this to this scene. It's just incredible, right? Yeah, it's, ama- it's you know, a trip like right into the, the world of his mind, which is like kind of under the assault of this weird presence in this space and stuff. And it's just kind of also works as like an amazing metaphor for alcoholism. But there's just like so much going on. Like I can't even, there's a whole theory about how Danny is being sexually abused by Jack and that nothing that happened in room 237 ever actually happened, that it's all Danny trying to process his dad abusing him. Oh, geez. Which is like, if you read about it, the evidence is truly staggering. So I kind of think that maybe that was maybe something that they were actually going for as opposed to some of those theories that I don't think really hold any water. But yeah, the scene in the ballroom with the bartender is sort of where you see Jack get comfortable for the first time, but it's also like in the presence of many dead people. So you know something's wrong when that's like his comfort zone. Oh yeah, and he he also kind of reveals a little bit of his mental state when he's losing time or unsure of what like what the timeline is where he says that the injury happened three years ago but we've also already heard in this conversation and previously that it was only five months ago because he stopped drinking immediately after so oh weird i never knew that yeah so he's really losing his grip a little bit yeah sense of time is all over the place and wendy walks in and finds jack seemingly alone And despite this huge conversation that he just had with the bartender, and she frantically pleads with him to investigate Danny's claim that a crazy woman attacked him in room 237. And Jack agrees, but he he seems a little drunk. No matter what you say about the fact that uh, no one is there currently, he seems to have gotten a hold of some alcohol. Or maybe he's just... Right, placebo. Maybe Um, that's all he needs is that one little push. Yeah, and he he does agree to go and check it out, and Danny looks like he's having another seizure while Jack goes in there, but we see that he's sending a mental signal to Dick Halloran, who's currently in Florida. Jack enters room 237, and he finds a young woman in the shower who slowly steps out, and Jack, like, leers at her in this really awful, like, I mean, he just has this awful look on his face, and... She steps out and they they embrace and kiss, but he sees her reflection 
which reveals that she's transformed into an elderly lady with rotting and sagging skin, and she cackles and reaches out for him as, as he flees. And it's just truly grotesque. Like, her, there's sores all over her body. Incredible effects. Yeah, it's amazing. It's disgusting. <laughs> One of my earliest memories of, like, a scary movie. The kind of thing that definitely leaves an impression. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you're like 10 and you're watching that movie, you're like, oh, a naked lady. And then it happens and you're like, ah, and then you never want to see a naked lady ever again. Yeah, you you fall for it. You're like, oh, wow, she's super hot. I'm with Jack. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What makes it even more unsettling is that he goes to talk to Wendy and says there's nothing wrong there. He doesn't even say like, oh, there was a lady and she disappeared. Like he says that it was a delusion of Danny's, but. Danny has bruises on him and a ripped sweater. So like he, he doesn't even have like the mental capacity at this point to be like, oh, I should think of something that doesn't put the suspicion on me. Yeah. Things heat up when Wendy suggests leaving the Overlook to take Danny to the doctor and Jack freaks out, insisting that they can't leave. And he, he goes back to the ballroom in his rage, which now has a lavish party going, but it's not modern looking even for 1980, <laughs> even taking that into account. It's still like the 20s. And Lloyd is still here, gives Jack another drink. And this is very interesting where he says, first of all, it's interesting that Jack has money that has spontaneously appeared in his wallet. And then Lloyd refuses it, saying, orders from the house, which I think is very funny. (laughs) That like, you can take it literally and be like, yeah, literally the house is like, no, he can't take your money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just manifests itself. And he gets a drink spilled on him by a butler who takes him to the bathroom to clean up. And this scene is just so dreamlike. It's really got this ethereal quality to it. Yeah, I also, the last time I watched it, I noticed what I've never noticed. Maybe everyone's noticed this. I don't know how I didn't notice it. But when he takes him, the waiter spills a drink on him, then the guy takes him into the bathroom. And as he's taking him into the bathroom, Jack Nicholson just like wipes the drink all over his back. (laughs) 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 He he wipes it all over him and his jacket is like covered in shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. I'll keep my eye for that one next time. And we find out that this butler that he is now, uh, he's wiped this drink all over is actually a, a mass murderer. <laughs> yes. This is, this is Delbert Grady himself. Jack remembers the story from before, but Grady denies that anything of the sort took place. And this is where he insists that Jack has always been the caretaker. And boy, what a classic line, classic delivery. You know, talk about making the most of a smaller role. Yeah, he's incredible. He feels like an extension of the hotel more so than oh, yeah. than anyone else. Jack is confused, but he kind of seems to accept this story. And, and Grady tells Jack that Danny has a great talent and that he's using it to bring Dick Halloran to the hotel. And he sort of like just implies at him about how to correct Danny and to deal with Wendy if she interferes. He just like intimates it at him, which I always thought yeah. kind of funny that he's like, hey, I can't control what you do, but if you happen to kill them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. good stuff. And back in Florida, Dick gets the message, but he has no luck contacting them at the hotel. So he books the next flight to Colorado. And Wendy grabs a baseball bat and starts looking for Jack. She's intent on leaving the hotel with Danny, whether or not Jack agrees to come. And she finds the book that Jack was writing left unattended next to the typewriter. And it's just hundreds of pages of the sentence, all work and no play, make Jack a dull boy. Boy, (laughs) 
what it's just so great it's so unsettling this like child's like practice line of how to type it's it's so scary because you see him you see him typing so much before that and you don't know what he's writing and then when you find out that's what it was the whole time like you realize how crazy he kind of already was when they got to the hotel or when you found them like a month after they moved in when you kind of thought he was on a different page of his sort of transformation into a crazy person it turns out that he's like a few pages past that already literally and he's been he's like lost his mind some time ago i also like that the sentences aren't all perfect you get to see all work and no play make jack a dull bog adult (laughs) and adult as well (laughs) <laughs> it's a typewriter man he can't there's no backspace <laughs> can't argue with the word processor mm-hmm. jack approaches from behind and asks how she likes it which i always think is very funny <laughs> as well it's so scary yeah what a it's a great entrance what a flair for the dramatic jack has <laughs> oh yes he does he menaces her in this iconic steady cam shot going up the stairs. And it's so great as he's really just unleashing it on Wendy. Like he's fully unhinged at this point. And she winds up hitting him with the bat as she's sobbing. Like you really feel bad for Wendy here. And he falls down the stairs, twisting his ankle. Wendy literally has to drag him to the to the pr- pantry and lock him in. <laughs> she's not the like biggest lady. So you're, like she's literally lugging him around uh, and it's it's a very funny image, but got that fight or flight strength. Yeah, and his eyes start to flutter open as she gets close, and you're like, "Oh God, hurry up!" Oh God, yeah. <laughs> so she does get him in there, and he wakes up and tells her that he's sabotaged the radio and the snow vehicle. And I'm really glad that she does go check, and she's not just like, "Well, I guess I believe this guy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jack's just like, all right, I'm going to take a nap. Not really anything I can do here. But he's woken up by Grady, who gives him the old, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed routine. <laughs> and Jack assures him that he can get the job done if, if he's given one more chance. And the pantry door suddenly unlocks. And boy, just having this confirmation that they can actually like affect physical things. And it's it's not just all in his mind. It, like, it, he's yeah. Like, it, yeah, that's it, the one thing in the movie that you can't really like explain away is not supernatural in some way and i mean wendy correctly and reasonably assumes that he's all taken care of <laughs> so she falls oh, asleep in the room but danny goes into a trance and he's carrying a knife and muttering red rum repeatedly he takes uh, wendy's lipstick and writes red rum on the bathroom door and starts shouting red rum, which wakes her up. I mean, classic kid move. We've all done it, right? Sure. (laughs) Everyone's been there. He sees the reflection of the bathroom door in the mirror, and it's reversed, and it says murder. You know, at that point, banging noises start coming from the door to the hallway. Surprise, it's Jack with an axe in the bedroom. And Wendy grabs Danny and locks him in the bathroom. And I like this is one thing that I really like about her character, is that all of her survival instincts are on point. (laughs) She Yes does a great job Um, although i do feel like she could have squeezed her tiny body out of that window but yeah you know you're probably right or she probably could have like kicked out the frame but you know yeah but yeah then he would have just chased him outside i don't know yeah it all worked out well spoiler (laughs) alert anyway go on she grabs andy and she does push him out of the window she's still in there though because she tries to get out and she can't fit so she just tells danny to run and hide and jack has chopped his way through the front door and goes wendy i'm home and then he knocks very politely on the bathroom door (laughs) 
<laughs> that always cracks me up too. And you know, this is this is when we get another iconic horror scene. Chops a hole in the door, sticks his head in, and screams, "Here's Johnny!" Um, this was actually improvised. It's a reference to the Tonight Show, uh, starring Johnny Carson. And I, every time I watch this movie, I like, I bet less people than last time know Johnny Carson. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant when I was a kid. I thought it was just a line from The Shining, and I was like, "But his name's Jack. Why is he calling himself Johnny?" But you know, it's even more, it's even more removed. So, you Gen Zers out there. Check out some Johnny Carson vids. Yeah, you perfect. will love them. For $5 a month, you can sponsor one Johnny Carson watcher. Yeah, he needs your viewership. So <laughs> get out there, track it down. And he gets this, this great line. And it's funny because the props department built a door that would be easy for Jack to get through. But Jack Nicholson actually used to be a volunteer fire marshal, so he tore it apart no problem. <laughs> they had to go build a stronger door for him, and they wound up going through 60 doors by the time they finally wrapped on that piece. Jesus. It's a lot <laughs> um, of doors. Yeah, it's a lot of doors. Jack sticks his hand through the door, and he turns the lock, but Wendy cuts him with the knife that she had, so he goes back to chopping it down. But luckily for her, he hears a vehicle outside, and he goes to check it out. And it's Dick, and you got to feel bad for this guy. <laughs> Because he goes inside and Jack just immediately kills him. He's <laughs> all this time rushing up here just to get cut down in his prime there. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Bummer. Yeah. Poor Scatman. I could, I would have, I gladly accepted more Scatman. Yeah. Who, who would? He, he survives in the book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He gets attacked with uh, like a croquet mallet <laughs> instead and it doesn't do quite as much damage. So read the book if you want to. Uh, yeah. You want to yeah, if you want if you want more uh, Scat McCruthers' character, check the book out. Um, <laughs> Not that it's better. One, one thing I also like though about this death is that Danny like feels it psychically. That connection that they had is like severed, and he screams yeah. the kitchen. So revealed where he is, unfortunately. <laughs> and, uh, rookie mistake. Jack runs to go get him, and uh, he follows Danny when Danny runs outside. And so now Danny is being chased by Jack and Wendy is looking for him and the hotel has enough like crazy guy power from Jack <laughs> that even Wendy can see the ghosts now <laughs> at the same time Danny leads Jack into the hedge maze and he realizes that he's leaving a trail of footprints in the snow for Jack to follow so he carefully retraces his steps by walking backwards an actual classic kid move. I used to do this all the time, try and see if I could retrace my steps perfectly. How'd you do? Um, poorly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Danny manages to do pretty well. He hides behind a hedge, and Jack arrives, sees the trail of footprints, ends abruptly, and just kind of just like, Ugh, I'm choosing my own path. Honestly, a power move that I really respect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Danny comes out of his hiding spot, follows his own footprints back to the maze's entrance. Great job by Danny. Smart kid. Yeah, nailed it. Wendy makes her way out of the hotel just as Danny emerges, and they just get the hell out of Dodge with a vehicle that Dick used to get to the hotel, and Jack just freezes to death like a chump in the maze. <laughs> but right before the end credits, this picture that you mentioned earlier, we get to it's this incredible slow zoom on the wall in the hotel. It's full of old photographs of the hotel's history, and there's an old recording echoing through the empty hallways and in the center of one picture is a young Jack, and the caption reads, Overlook Hotel, July 4th Ball, 1921. So he really was the caretaker the whole time. Yep. 
I guess. I don't know. Still not quite sure what it means, but I like it. Yeah, I really like not knowing what things mean. Was that picture always there? Mm. Or did it kind of materialize after the events of the movie? Did he sort of like mess with time somehow? Like everyone who goes there ends up getting sucked into the hotel and becoming a part of the hotel. And then all of a sudden they were there the whole time. Or like when they got to the hotel, if they had seen that picture, would he have been in it already? A lot to think about when it comes to this movie. That's why it's part of what makes it so great. You, you can really like mull it over. You can sit with it and chew on it for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think it's more the first one because Grady also is like working at the hotel as a butler or whatever when he meets him in the ballroom and he wasn't he was also the caretaker at the hotel until he murdered everyone just like Jack tried to. Right. So it seems like he was also sort of just taken over by the hotel and his soul is just sort of, and there's like not really a sense of time in the hotel. So I think you just kind of become a part of that whole entity of the overlook when you get sort of like taken over by it. Yeah. It, uh, it really, it envelops you completely and you become part of it. So I, I would definitely agree with that. Lifelong member. Unfortunately, Stephen King was quite disappointed by the movie. He admitted that Stanley Kubrick's visuals were stunning, but said that it was surface and not substance, describing the film as a fancy car without an engine. I'm curious what you think about if an adaptation has any responsibility to the source material. Um, uh, no, not at all. I think that he took inspiration from the book, but honestly, I'm not a big fan of the book. I think it's kind of dumb. I think he like completely improved it. I, I've read every Stephen King book, and I don't think that's even close to one of his best books. Might be a controversial opinion, but I just don't think it's good. And uh, <laughs> I think there's way more substance to Stanley Kubrick's movie than there is to the book. I mean, in the book, everything is spelled out for you, and it's like very on the nose. And he kind of like pulled it back and, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the aerial shot as a metaphor for kind of like him taking the book and viewing it from a distance and mining it for things that visually would conjure a feeling of dread or whatever the feeling is that Stephen King was trying to conjure. But it's a completely different medium. So it has to be, it has to be like more visually based. So I I don't think a lot of the choices that Stephen King made in the book would work on film, which we know that they don't because they made the miniseries with Steven Weber and it's like the worst thing ever made. It's bad. It's like, it's like, it's, and it's like exactly the book and Stephen King wrote the screenplay. So I think Stephen King was just a little butthurt that he like changed some of his ideas and that it wasn't very like reverent towards him. Yeah, I I would agree with that. One thing I I talked about in our Annihilation episode is I really like Alex Garland's approach to adapting the book Annihilation, where he read it like three years before he wrote the screenplay and then didn't reread it. And he wrote it, he said it was like writing a dream of the book. And kind of just taking the broad strokes and and really making it your own, I think is something that's so powerful that a screenwriter can do when they're adapting it. So definitely. Totally, especially in like a a genre piece where you're just going to have to translate so much text into uh, like a feeling or an image or something entirely different. I feel like to have a little bit of distance from whatever you're adapting would probably just give you more room to imagine and like explore your own interpretation of the themes or whatnot. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, we've kind of touched on, on our, our opinions on this movie throughout the entire summary, but 
we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why we think this is the best horror movie ever made. So why don't you go ahead and, and start us off? I think it's the best horror movie ever made and just like my favorite movie of all time, just because I, I don't, there's no other movie that I can watch over and over and over again and feel like I'm watching it for the first time or like pick up on something new or like I can choose to watch it from a lot of different lenses. Like if I want to watch it sort of academically, I like gain stuff from it. If I want to watch it to like have like a nostalgic laugh, I can watch it. But if I really want to be like scared by something, I can also just like flip the switch in my brain and watch it like that. And it scares the shit out of me. The ambiguity of it makes it super versatile in terms of being able to view it from a bunch of different lenses or have a different reaction to it every time. And I really like just not having all the answers, but having just enough to really like be able to come to your own conclusion, but still be open to maybe some other possibilities that I've just never seen a movie like it. The performances are insane and the visual language is just like totally iconic. And I also have never really seen something that conjures the feeling of like with the opening aerial shot and like sort of this, the sound design of you hear like the howling of what sound like the spirits of Native Americans that they built the hotel over because he mentions they built it over a Native American burial ground. It really like gives you the sense that there's a whole other world foreboding like energy that's watching over the entire movie like from the sky and like moving in up in their car and following them to the hotel it's just like a, a feeling that a feeling of otherworldliness and foreboding that i think is not really captured in the same way in anything i've ever seen yeah i mean i i can't disagree with any of that this is the masters at work i mean stanley kubrick is like i said one of our great directors of all time uh, shelly duvall just absolutely nails like jack nicholson said one of the toughest characters like one of the toughest roles maybe ever jack nicholson himself does an incredible job and i mean child acting is so hard to have a good child actor who doesn't detract from the movie and and Danny does an amazing job here. And he is incredible. Like the scene where he sees the girls and he starts talking to Tony and he switches back and forth between him talking and Tony talking. It's just like a tight shot on his face. And it's so nuanced and so like honest and good. And I can't understand how a child could do that. Especially since he didn't even know they were filming a horror movie. <laughs> Stanley uh, hid it from him. <laughs> so he thought he was filming a drama. But Yeah, I mean, that scene in particular is just nuts. Like every oh, time I watch it, I'm just like, how the fuck did they get that kid to do that? It's crazy. Being able to watch it through so many lenses adds such a rewatchability to it. I mean, even if you don't think that any of the conspiracy theories hold water, about like, oh, this is the Apollo 11 sweater represents that Stanley Kubrick is confessing that he filmed the moon landing. Like, it's <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. You can still watch it and like look for things that might lend credence to it, even if even if you're just like having a lark. And being, Yeah, I mean, I don't really think any of that stuff is, I think, you know, it's probably just intended to be totally ambiguous. So people yeah. could come up with random theories like that, but it is super fun to read about. Exactly. And, and the fact that it is something that's so fun to explore, not just like, like not just a fun movie to watch, but something that you want to dig into and go and read more about it and what it might mean and all these great things. The production design is as iconic as any horror villain. It's really just spectacular. And, and it's the best horror movie ever made. 
Um, Ever. Chase, this was fantastic talking with you. We've reached the plug section of our show. So anything that you want to tell the people about, feel free to go ahead and, uh, and let them know. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. This was super fun. I got Greenlight. The movie you mentioned earlier is coming out uh, February 25th on demand. You can pre-order it on iTunes now. Yeah, it's a fun movie. I had a lot of fun making it. It was a great role. Excited for people to see it. Yeah, I definitely recommend people check this one out. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, there's a lot of like fun uh, color to it. It's not just your typical dour horror movie, especially for something that is an indie horror movie. It really seems to, you know, every dollar is on the screen. It's really spectacular. So people definitely check this one out. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at GergHef. You can find the show on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, we have merch that you can find. Basically, if you go to the Twitter, you'll find everything you need to know. So just reach out to us on there. Thanks again for coming on, Chase. This was fantastic. And Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Bye, everyone.